Today on the Orthodox Ethos Podcast, we present Lesson 4 from our lecture series on Orthodox Ecclesiology. The topic of today's lesson is Saints Maximus and the Damascene, the 6th and 7th Ecumenical Councils. This podcast was originally recorded in March of 2021. Thank you for joining us and God bless you. All right, everybody, welcome. Good to have you back on this lesson four for our Orthodox Ecclesiology class. This is our fourth lesson of 10. And tonight we're going to be covering the age of the church in the age of St. Maximus the Confessor, St. John Damascus, the fifth or the sixth and seventh ecumenical councils. And we're also going to be starting off where we left off last week, which was a look at uh, St. Augustine. Just a few words about St. Augustine's ecclesiology and Orthodox ecclesiology, as well as a look at the unique uh, events surrounding the third ecumenical council, which have a lot to teach us about how we uh, in the Orthodox Church react and deal with heresy when it erupts in the church and it always erupts in the church when we're talking about uh, heretical teaching that originates outside the church it's a different matter entirely when it originates in the church and we have uh, representatives of the church theologians bishops teaching it then this is very important how we deal with that so we'll be looking at that uh, that matter uh, surrounding the third ecumenical council with saint epatios uh, we'll look at, as I said, the writings of St. Maximus, the writings of St. John Damascus, uh, and we'll end with a look at the stance of St. Tarasios at the Seventh Ecumenical Council. So a lot to cover, a lot of interesting material. So we'll say our prayers, and we'll, uh, we'll get started. Here's our prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind, with the pure light of the divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our minds to the understanding of the gospel teachings. And place also fear for thy blessed commandments to trample down all kind of desires. We may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God. And unto thee we ascribe glory, together with thy Father, which is from everlasting. Let all holy good and life, creating spirit, will now endeavor unto ages of ages. Amen. Canta pensas aftis to pnevma to aion ge di afton diniko meni saginemsas filantro pedoxansi. Amen. So, let's get started. Uh, we're going to begin, as I said, with a look back at our previous session. We're going to 
close that off because it's really important for us uh, not to not to leave it, uh, but to to finish it up. And that was about the last thing we talked about was Saint Augustine and his ecclesiological stance, his dealing. How did he deal with schismatics, heretics, and the borders and the boundaries of the church and the return of those into the church? He has a unique kind of peculiar way of dealing with it uh, that you don't really find anywhere else. And so on the one hand, it's interesting, and a lot of people have spent a lot of ink looking at it. On the other hand, it really never played a part in Orthodox ecclesiology. Uh, it never was something that the church considered uh, considerably in, 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 the, in the East and in the, in the councils. Uh, directly, we don't have any real references to St. Augustine's teachings at all. Indirectly, we have something from a council that happened about 100 years uh, later after St. Cyprian, uh, quite a, even more than that, and, and that's considered to be Augustinian in, in approach. Uh, but even that could, be, that could be interpreted as St. Basil interpreted uh, the, uh, the stance of Rome at, in an economic way. And so uh, even that is not necessarily uh, viewed, uh, 100% viewed in, in, in the context of an Augustinian way. So the question I guess we want to answer is, can the Orthodox today consider or reconsider their ecclesiology on an Augustinian basis? As we said last time, and go back to the previous lecture, uh, there's a unanimous consent on contemporary scholars, but certainly through church history, that uh, the, the Orthodox Church's ecclesiology is was shaped by such figures as St. Ignatius uh, uh, of Antioch and St. Irenae of Leon and St. Cyprian of Carthage, St. Basil uh, the Great, and, 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 and many others. St. Cyril of, uh, uh, of uh, Jerusalem uh, expresses... Uh, much clarity on, on, on the whole question of the boundaries and the question of uh, mysteries outside of the church. So it would be a reconsideration. And there's been some, some attempt in the 20th century, Father George Florovsky in his famous text uh, on the limits of the church uh, kind of speculates on what that could be, although he begins by saying, yes, our ecclesiology is uh, that which is expressed by St. Cyprian. So there really isn't uh, there really isn't much of a question. In the massive writings, as we saw last time of St. Cyprian, uh, St. Augustine on this, he's got five books uh, directed toward the, um, the Donatists, and he's very repetitive, and, and, and you can actually find things that seem to contradict. And I'm going to give you two quotes. Uh, we're going to restate the one we did last time and then bring up another one, and then we're going to ask a question or two, and then we'll, we'll finish with St. Augustine. So remember what he said last time. He said, uh, very clearly that the Holy Spirit does not exist outside the body. Uh, the Holy Spirit does not give life to anyone outside the church, uh, outside the body of Christ. Uh, they, the schismatic inheritors, cannot seek the Holy Spirit except in the body of Christ, of which they possess the outward sign outside the church. They do not possess the actual reality itself within the church, of which this is the outward sign. This is letter 185. 1150 is, the, is what you want to find in, the, in his letters. So he's very clear in the, and this is the consensus of the fathers we've said before, this is, this is undebatable, uh, that don't see the Holy Spirit as in the mysteries. Now we're going to talk about St. Saint, Saint Maximus tonight, and you're going to see that he talks about the Holy Spirit in all of creation, and of course, no one's talking about that action of the Holy Spirit. So let's not be confused. 
Holy Spirit exists throughout all creation, there would be no creation if there was not the Holy Spirit working through. In, in all places and fill us all things we say in our prayers. But we're talking about the mysteries. We're talking about the action of the Holy Spirit in the grace of the mysteries, in particular the divine energies of purification, illumination, and deification. So he is consistent with the patristic teaching. And yet, he'll also say in other places, in the book against the Donatists, the following, which is a bit confusing. Wherefore, even if heretics should be truly anxious to correct their error and come to the church for the very reason that they believed that they had no baptism unless they received it in the church, even under these circumstances, we should not be bound to yield to their desire for the repetition of baptism, for the repetition. So still within the boundaries of an orthodox, uh, uh, possible orthodox view of things, right? Because uh, there is this idea in the orthodox church, we'll talk about it as we go on through tonight, that the form, the water, the immersion, uh, is one aspect of the of, of the mystery. The other aspect, of course, is the spirit. It's water and the spirit. So there has been, and there is an interpretation of our of our economy, the, our economic uh, economic, let's say, approach to this whole question that having having that having partake uh, happened outside the church where there is no Holy Spirit. That does not need to be repeated, but it could be fulfilled by the presence of the Holy Spirit given in the church by the ministers of the church. That's one interpretation of, of how we understand the uh, the application of economy. Uh, mind you, the canons don't give that explanation, but it's one explanation, and it's probably the most plausible explanation to theologically unpack this. The church doesn't seem... The church father, the church canons don't seem to have any real need to unpack that. They don't give an apology for their practice. Uh, the, the, this is Christ himself in the church doing as he likes, as he did on the cross with the thief, except him in a paradise. This is what economy means. It's his economic <clears throat> working out for particular cases and circumstances that, uh, that uh, as it were, do not are not covered by the strict rule, the acrivia, the exactitude. So we can still see here, St. Augustine's really not saying anything different, but rather he's, but he goes on and interprets this now. This is where I think we get into hot, you know, murky waters because he doesn't have the interpretive key of acrivia and economia. He's not looking at it like St. Basil does apparently uh, in my reading of this. And <clears throat> he is rather a bit legalistic about it all. So it becomes, and he's, he's, he's feeling needy always has to do ecclesiology. In other words, there's not this idea that there's an economic aspect, right? W when we see in St. Basil, uh, which is not atheological, but it's not an attempt to uh, do ecclesiology. I don't know if that, if that makes sense, but that's the distinction, but rather they should be taught on the one hand that baptism though perfectly in itself, I'm continuing here, could be could in no way profit their perversity if they would not submit to be corrected. And on the other hand, that the perfection of baptism could not be impaired by their perversity while refusing to be corrected. And again, that no further perfection is added to baptism in them because they are submitting to correction. But that while they themselves are quitting their iniquity, the schism, that which was before within them to their destruction is now beginning to be of profit for salvation. For learning this, they will both recognize the need for salvation and Catholic unity. 
will cease to claim as their own what is really Christ's and will not confound the sacrament of truth, although existing in themselves, with their own individual error. So here he seems to be implying that they have a spiritual reality or some kind of reality, it's really unclear, uh, that they've received from this profitless uh, baptism. So they've received it to their destruction. And the implication is that they have it, but they have it under destruction, not unlike some in the church, he also says elsewhere. Uh, so there's, there's, that's one of, the, one of the problems here is he doesn't make a sharp distinction between it, having it outside and having it inside the church. Uh, and, of course, in the, inside the church, the Holy Spirit is given. And so the reason for that being under destruction is a personal reason, not an ecclesiological reason, not a schismatic, not a question of unity. But for those in, this, in the schism, he's clearly saying that they don't have Catholic unity, they don't have uh, the church, and therefore... Uh, the there's no prophet spiritually this in, in in other places he says the spirit comes and leaves immediately which is very strange very odd uh that it's given and then departs uh immediately um anyway we, we don't have time to get into all the ins and outs of his interpretation which is which could take a whole evening uh but what i want to say here is that it's his his view of things is fairly peculiar to himself and he goes to great extent lengths, uh, page after page after page of trying to work it out so there's perfect harmony. But it doesn't really appear to be, in my eyes, to be perfect harmony. Um, in any case, he goes on a little bit later in chapter 8 and says, Let them therefore hasten to the unity and truth of the Catholic Church, not that they may have the sacrament of washing, if they have already bathed in it, although in heresy, but that they may have it to their health. So here uh, it leads me to believe that he's talking purely about the baptism of water. And since he says, as we'll, we'll kind of unpack things here, he says clearly that they do not have the grace of the Holy Spirit outside the church. That's the one. He says that outside they possess only the outward sign, not the reality itself. Okay. So what do they have then? Well, they have the sacrament of truth, he says, existing within, although under condemnation. So it's a little strange. What is that sacrament of truth existing within? What is that reality there? I think, I think he's trying to do what St. Basil and the fathers were doing in the East, and that is something like an acrivia economia distinction, but he's doing it within a legalistic framework, which doesn't ultimately work, in, 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 at least in my uh, estimation. Insomuch as he accepts that there is no spiritual aspect of baptism outside the church, and that only the water was conferred at best, he's represented with the holy tradition. That's within the holy tradition. However, his peculiar legalistic explanations and his insistence that the form not be repeated is not consistent with holy tradition and the patristic consensus, as, for example, expressed in Trullo, which accepts canons, which demand there be there be baptism and of course we have saint basil's canon we saw last time where he says i don't care if there's economy in rome he needs to be baptized now that would not that would not be consistent with what saint augustine said he wouldn't say that saint augustine would not say that it should be repeated he's quite clear that it should not be repeated so in that sense he is not consistent with saint basil and with the the, the holy fathers in trullo who are who are collecting all the canons, 
and allowing for it. So there's some other distinction here that we, we cannot strictly go with an Augustinian view. We cannot follow him and say, this is our ecclesiology. It's not possible. He has some inconsistencies with our general uh, patristic consensus. And, uh, and the church sees no problem in repeating the water aspect of the, the twofold mystery, right? Water and the spirit. The church doesn't seem any problem with doing that. It's totally within the confines and the, the discernment of the church to do either to do economy, in other words, to allow that if indeed there was a proper baptism, that's that's the the, the point that we'll go we'll see going forward in our examination of Canon ninety five, and we'll see going forward throughout the second millennium, <clears throat> is that the holy fathers will say, look, if there's no actual immersion, there's not the form, there's not the type, they've not been faithful to that at least among the heretics then we should not even consider economy. And, and that's something you won't see uh, in the West. Uh, and, and that's a key aspect of this whole thing. So in the, in the Orthodox Church, we have no problem saying uh, to those who've been re- even immersed, even, even if they, obviously the ancient, her- ancient heretics uh, that he's talking about, they were not pouring or sprinkling or baptizing with one immersion. They were baptizing according to the church's baptism, in other words, the form. Uh, the, so that on that basis, he's saying economy. But he's also saying, no, we don't have to economy if we don't want to. So this is a different approach. And uh, so we cannot, to answer the question, we cannot really go back to Augustine and say this is our theology. What's interesting here, for other reasons, neither does Rome. Rome has turned away from Augustine. And here you're going to see a quote by one of their leading um, apologists in the 20th century, Carl Adam. He wrote The Spirit of Catholicism. Uh, that's a, um, In the corner, that's a wrong uh, uh, reference. That's not to uh, on baptism. This is actually Carl Adam, The Spirit of Catholicism. I think that's the t- title. It's written in the 30s. Uh, but he was, a, he was considered kind of a traditional, more patristic-oriented in his day, a uh, theologian who was writing in, in Germany, kind of defending the church during a very difficult time. And here's what he says about this whole question. It's very instructive for us. And it helps us to understand where Rome is and where ecumenism has gone and where the ecumenists among the Orthodox are going um, and how they've departed from Augustine and Cyprian. In other words, they've departed from the whole tradition. So here, here's what he says. We are not to regard these sacraments, that means he means the non, non-Roman Catholic sacraments, thus administered outside the church as being objectively valid only. Okay, so it's not, to, we don't just see them in, in terms of the form. We don't just see them in terms of being objectively valid, but like St. Augustine, you know, worthless because under condemnation, St. Augustine says, because they're outside the church, the unity of the church. He says, no, we don't see them like that. They're also subjectively efficacious. St. Augustine didn't teach that. Blessed Augustine seems to have held such a view regarding the efficacy of the sacraments. In other words, that they were not. He goes on to explain why that's the case. Why that in fact, in fact, St. Augustine had this. The Jansenists in the 17th century followed Blessed Augustine and advocated the same erroneous opinion as Blessed Augustine. What's that? setting up as their principle that outside the church there is no grace. Extra ecclesium nulla conceditor gratia. All right? So there is no grace outside the church according to not just St. Augustine, as we've seen, but all the church fathers. 
Not grace, generally speaking. Nobody ever talked about that. But in the mysteries, that's what's at stake. So that might have been the problem with the Jansenists. They became very undiscerning. They applied it to anything and everything. That's not the discernment of the Holy Father. As you'll see with St. Maximus in a, in a little while, he clearly talks about grace also of the church, but different for Christians because of the mysteries. All right, so that's very key. He goes on. But again, it was Rome and the Pope that expressly rejected this proposal, this proposition, that there's no grace in the mysteries of the schismatics, he's saying. The assertion that the Catholic Church of later centuries has developed the ideas of St. Cyprian and Blessed Augustine. See how he says they're, they're together in this. That's the same, the same what Florovsky said. Florovsky says Augustine doesn't really disagree with Cyprian. Of course he couldn't disagree with Cyprian. He doesn't agree with Cyprian, but then he has his own version of explaining it all and trying to, and to try and explain why the repetition is not necessary. Okay, so there is a difference in terms of the application, but in terms of the basic ecclesiology, in terms of the Holy Spirit outside the church, they agree. So the assertion that the Catholic Church of later centuries has developed the ideas of St. Cyprian and Blessed Augustine is in contradiction with the plain facts of history. For the truth is that the latter church, the later church, corrected the original rigorism of the ancient African theologian and maintained that God's grace worked even outside the Catholic body. All right, so they don't they don't follow St. Augustine. Non-Catholic sacraments have the power to sanctify and save. St. Augustine didn't teach that. Not only objectively, but also subjectively. <clears throat> It is therefore conceivable also from the church's standpoint that there is true, devout, and Christian life in those non-Catholic communions which believe in Jesus and baptize in his name. All right, so that is a clearly a post-schism Western, and I'm not really sure when it actually, when does this date to? It's hard to say. Well, there certainly there's the date to the Jansenist period. Where they, in my book, I go into this uh, in, I think, I don't know, chapter four or five, and I talk about their rejection of uh, the Jansenist teaching is heretical, but unfortunately also then Augustine's teaching. And he says, he, he confirms it. Yeah, we don't, we don't follow St. Augustine or St. Cyprian. So what's interesting is neither do we follow St. Augustine in, the, in certain aspects, but we do follow the Holy Tradition, which St. Augustine follows, in terms of the grace of the mysteries, that they don't exist outside the one body. And uh, Catholicism has departed from that by their own admission. Very important topic, all right? Very important in, in, to understand what's going on in contemporary ecumenism because uh, contemporary ecumenism is following, for the most part, ecclesiologically speaking, the Second Vatican Council. And so, therefore, those among the Orthodox who are falling into this error, this is very important for, uh, for them to understand and correct and come back to Orthodox ecclesiology. All right, now, we're going to change gears. We're going to switch gears, we say, and we're going to go to a, a different aspect of our ecclesiology. We're going to look at... How do we deal with the rise of heresy and heretics before a synodical condemnation? This is also very pertinent to our day. Now we're going to look at the temptation, so to speak, on the right, and that is to rush to uh, to, to to break communion and break uh, commemoration, cease commemoration, and to even before ascended and to cease commemoration and communion, even of those who are. Uh, Orthodox, but are not doing the same as, as as you. And we've had that, unfortunately, in the 20th and 21st century, uh, not a few times. So this is a very important topic. How do we deal with heresy? Some people are saying, they're writing to me, 
you know, obviously we have a lot of heresy in the church today because of our day and the, the heresy of ecumenism. All this. Why don't we do X, Y, Z? Why don't we do more? Why don't we break communion? Why don't we cease commemoration? All this. So a lot of people are asking this question. And this is a typical question to ask. And I asked the question years ago. Uh, and you have to get the answers of how the fathers dealt with it. It's not, it's not um, always easy. We have to uh, crucify our intellect a little bit and get into a different way of thinking. Can't just accept, expect everything to fall into place uh, in our coming from a secular mindset or a worldly mindset. All of a sudden, we're going to understand everything. It takes time. So this is a very instructive example of three saints and how they dealt with Nestorios, the famous patriarch of Constantinople, who uh, from 386 to 450, he lived from 386 to 450, and he was patriarch from 428 to 431, uh, and immediately becoming Archbishop of Constantinople. Uh, so think now, you're in Constantinople, and the patriarch comes to power, and he starts teaching heresy bareheaded and saying things that have never been said by the, by the faithful and by the church. Uh, and what do you do? How do you deal with it? We're going to see how, how a few people, how very important saints of the church dealt with it. Uh, immediately, he starts teaching the heresy. And for three years, until the council, the, the third ecumenical council, he does that. And he doesn't just teach it. He also excommunicates those and opposes those who resist him and his heretical views. All right. So this is a, this is a very active uh, heretical-minded patriarch of Constantinople. And so let's look at, first of all, St. Epatios of Rufiania, Rufianas. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but uh, he is a, an ascetic, an abbot in, the, in Constantinople. Uh, and he received the revelation from God that in three and a half years, this tear will be uprooted. In other words, Nestorius. When St. Apatheus understood that Nestorius held opinions contrary to those which should be acknowledged, he immediately erased his name from the diptychs. So he's an abbot, and he would have been commemorating his bishop, obviously in the Proscomedi before divine liturgy, and he immediately erases him. Doesn't wait for a council, ceases commemoration, essentially ceases communion with his own bishop. From that time I learned that he said, from the, the time that I learned that he said unrighteous things about the Lord, I will no longer have, I have, I have no longer been in communion with him, and I do not commemorate his name, for he is not a bishop. All right, so let's, let's unpack that. What does it mean, he's not a bishop? Of course he's a bishop. He's still your bishop, but he's saying he's not a bishop. What does that mean? It means that prior to the synod, before there's a synodical decision, because we're a conciliar church, it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. That's when things are finalized. That's when things are clear. And all the Orthodox Christians have to come and agree when it's an Orthodox council and the people have embraced it. And the people have, in particular, in this case, the, the bishop, the offending bishop or priest has been excommunicated. That's when you can say he's not a bishop. So what does he mean he's not a bishop before a synodical decision? Well, it's in a sense of a di it's diagnostic. All right, so it's, it's, it's pointing to what a real bishop, a true bishop does. He teaches the right, the word of truth. So spiritually speaking, he has lost the authority of the bishop, but it still has to be worked out canonically. It still has to be worked out synodically. It still has to be worked out on the conciliar level. It has to be confirmed by the church. And there still is time for repentance when he's called to repentance. So 
That's a very important distinction. You hear, you see, you might see saints, you might see people today say, oh, he's not a bishop. But until there's a synod in the council, those words are diagnostic in nature and not final. And we can see that later on when we look at the, we'll look at next week, we'll look at the uh, first, second synod, the 15th uh, canon, the 13, 14, 15 canons of the first, second synod. We'll look at how they deal with this situation. Uh, but on that basis, you can see they talk about pseudo-bishops before a synodical condemnation. Uh, but it has to be understood in the right context. Context is so important. If you don't understand the context, you're going to make a mistake. So uh, it's important to note that St. Hippatios ceased commemoration of, Saint, of Nestorios alone. He did not break communion with Nestorios and everyone who was in communion with Nestorios. All right? We don't have that. We have him ceasing commemoration, probably kept a distance, had no communion in any real sense. But he doesn't go out and start breaking communion and declaring people who don't break communion in schism, which we have going on in the church today. Because there were saints and others who were obviously still in communion with him. So he didn't do that. He didn't go say, oh, you're not breaking communion with the story. It was quick enough. I won't have communion with you ever, uh, either. Didn't do that. And that's an important thing. Uh, distinction and discernment here. Now, let's look at St. Cyril of Alexandria, who is going to, of course, be the major figure at the Third Ecumenical Council, who's going to defend the teaching of the Church on the Mother of God, the Theotokos, and the, and the Incarnation. So he takes a different approach than St. Hipatios. What does he do? He maintains communion with him until a council condemns him, or at least until very, very close to the council. We're not really sure exactly when he sees, sees communion, but most likely at the council, very close to the council, after three years of trying to persuade him. He collected written accounts of the blasphemies of Nestorius, and he communicated with St. Celestine of Rome on how to deal with him. That would have been the right thing to do. St. Celestine, the Pope of Rome, would be the first in order or rank. All right, so, uh, and then Alexandria, and then uh, Constantinople at the time. So he's going to his brother bishop, who is uh, first of, among equals, and he's going to Ask for him, uh, his opinion, his uh, his thoughts on how we ought to deal with this, this uh, prominent bishop in the church. In his 11th letter, St. Cyril states that at first he was silent and wrote to no one, believing that in these matters, uh, precipitate action is not without blame. In other words, he says, you don't rush into things. All right. But since we have to come to a uh, we have come now to the crest of the evil, as it were. I thought it was absolutely necessary to loosen my tongue hereafter and to say that everything is in turmoil. All right. So he's, he says, look, I've done, I've been patient. I haven't said anything. I've been collecting information. I've been waiting to see what will happen. Not really sure how long, but certainly months, maybe even a year, maybe more. It's hard, hard to say. Uh, and of course, back then we didn't have the communications that we have today. So things would have been even slower. And he goes on, although I wish to make it clear to him by a synodical letter that we are unable to have dealings with one who says and thinks these things, I have not done this. I, I have not said to him, I'm going to cease commemoration or communion with you. But because I thought that this is necessary to offer a hand to those who slipped and to raise them as fallen brethren, I advised him through letters to desist from such false teachings. And you can be sure when he wrote the letters, he addressed him in a very polite and, and kind way and, uh, and recognized his episcopacy. He did not 
begin the letter by condemning him and calling him a false bishop, right? So he's writing him letters, begging him to stop teaching the heresy. He goes on, but we do not throw off communion with him openly until we specify, uh, until we have communicated these matters to your reverence. Wherefore, deem to specify what seems best and whether it is necessary to be in communion with him sometimes or to forbid communion henceforward openly because no one who is in communion uh, is in communion who thinks and teaches such things. All right, so what should we do? Is it necessary to be in communion or should we forbid communion? Uh, St. Cyril stated that the letter he wrote in Astorius profited nothing for he clings even now uh, until now to his original errors and does not cease saying distorted things. St. Cyril then sought the advice of Pope Celestine concerning various methods of combating this heresy, which included both the breaking of or main, maintain maintenance of uh, communion. So this is still, we're, we're not rushing to break communion, we're not rushing to condemn, we're still hoping for a return, we're still being patient that there'll be a return. Uh, so there is a certain amount of times, hard to say in every case, that one would give before that they would go to the point. And of course, the first and foremost would be to call the council and have the council deal with it before any other action is taken uh, unilaterally. So St. Celestine of Rome now, what does he have to say? It is our wish that there still be hope for pardon for the one being corrected so that he may return and live. But let there be an open judgment against him if he continues. For such a wound must be cut out. Wherefore, let them share in our communion whom he put away from communion. It seems that he had put people away. St. Cyril seems to remark in his 17th letter that there are people excommunicated for the faith opposed. So you actually have him doing a lot of schismatic activity in his sea, in his area, and yet they're still being patient. They're still being patient. They're not immediately declaring a break. Uh, so they, they, he says, let's reach out to those people who've been, who've been excommunicated, that they're in communion with us. Uh, because they speak against him and let them let him know that he cannot share our communion if he persists in this path of perversion. Within 10 days, counting from the day of this morning, he should either condemn his evil teachings by written confession. If he should not do this, your holiness, because of the care of, for that church, should immediately understand that he must be removed from our body. It was only after all of the above that the Pope convened a council, a local synod, and condemn the errors of Nestorius in the year 430. So he first, he has a council locally. And this is what I've heard from people in Greece for many years now. Our struggle against the heresy in our day is for a local church to condemn it as a heresy. Now, we have the example in our day of the Church of Georgia, who can, which condemned in council a number of aspects of the contemporary ecumenistic heresy in council, in uh, 1998, uh, I want to say, uh, just, year, just before 2000, year 2000, they condemned that in council. We have the Church of Bulgaria having similar uh, statements made around the time of the Council of Crete. So there is, there, is a, there is an effort in the church for many years for a local church, a local synod, to condemn the various heretical thinking and teaching. That's exactly what happened here in the example of Pope Celestine. 
So our conclusion is that Nestorius was not cut off automatically. He remained in communion until his potential repentance or until his synodal condemnation. Both St. Cyril and St. Celestine maintain communion with Nestorius at least until his rejection of the proposed anathemas. And therefore, both maintaining communion before synodical condemnation and ceasing commemoration are possible patristic paths in resistance to heresy. We'll see this very clearly in this, the uh, council, the first, second council, and the 15th canon. We'll look at it next week. So I'm not going to go on here, but remember that. We'll come back to that. That's the stance that there is possibility of both, as long as they're both obviously working against the heresy for the faith. Uh, their pastoral questions initially, how do you deal with this, bring them to repentance. There's room for both as long as the end game, the end result will be a synodical conciliar decision. That's where we want to end up, first locally and then, if necessary, uh, an ecumenical council. All right, so... Yeah, you can, you can check out the, the PDF later for some of these other little details, but we're going to move on and go to uh, St. Maximus the Confessor on the unity of the church. So very important, obviously, great theologian, great saint of our church. We're going to begin with his uh, just one aspect of his uh, mystagogy, one of his important texts on divine liturgy, which is also based in ecclesiological examination. We could probably do a little more on this, but this is the, uh, one of the most important aspects. Before I get into that, I want to bring this, put this in context to today, because I think this is going to help us understand why these thoughts by St. Maximus are so important. So bear with me a minute before we get to the quote here by St. Maximus. Uh, in our context today, why is this quote so important? Okay, so let's look at it uh, in terms of the contemporary ecumenistic uh, ecclesiology, uh, especially of Vatican II. Uh, so you have you have the unique Augustinian principle that heretics had the sacramentum, the sign, but not the res sacramenti, which is the reality. All right, that's his distinction. We just went over that. Uh, but here in our day, we have something that's been surpassed. Again, we're going back and we're seeing that the contemporary uh, contemporary Catholicism, post-Vatican II Catholicism, have abandoned Saint Augustine, and they've sur surpassed him in this in, the, in these ideas with a very bizarre idea. And that is that those there are those who are baptized into perfection, right? So they, they can achieve the life in Christ, like, like Carl Adam just said, but they are imperfect in communion because they believe that those outside of the communion of the Roman, Roman Catholicism, Roman uh, papal Protestant communion outside, so all the Protestants and the Orthodox and any other groups, the Monophysites, whatever they are, outside of Catholicism, that they have real baptism, they have the life in Christ, but they are imperfect in communion. Obviously, there's no perfect communion now, right? There's imperfect, par partial uh, communion. Uh, is that possible? We're going to see St. Maximus, what he has to say about it. Uh, but in their, in their in contemporary context, you have, if the various groups of baptized have Christ as their common bond, right? The access through which they are in communion. And since Christ is perfect and imparts perfection, how is their communion with him and between themselves imperfect? 
Let me state that again. This is a question that would be posed to those who have this new theory of baptismal unity, right? If the various groups of baptized have Christ as their common bond, that's what unites them, right? They have that partial communion. They're all in Christ, apparently. They, that's what they believe. The access through which they are in communion. And since Christ is perfect and imparts perfection, how is it their communion with him and between themselves is imperfect? They are in communion as a gift, not as a merit. It's not a, so what they personally lack is not at cannot be the cause of an incomplete ecclesiastical communion. If the church is lacking, if the church is lacking, the ultimate implication is that Christ is lacking for the church is the body of Christ. All right, so is the church lacking? Apparently that's the only solution here. Church, somehow the church is lacking. An imperfect communion can only mean that it, then an imperfect church. Uh, a body of Christ that is lacking and unable to be truly Catholic. Catholic in the sense of the fullness of truth and grace and uh, the presence of God. This is precisely what the Council at uh, Vatican II and contemporary Latin theology has concluded. So uh, the text on ecumenism in, in, in the Vatican II states that the divisions, quote, the divisions among Christians prevent the church from attaining the fullness of Catholicity proper to her in those of her sons who, though attached to her by baptism, are yet separated from full communion with her. Furthermore, the church herself finds it more difficult to express in actual life her full Catholicity in all her bearings. So the official text of the Vatican II Council on ecumenism and on the whole question of the baptism of uh, non-Catholics, non-Roman Catholics, states clearly that there is a limit, a problem with Catholicity because of these, what we just described, you're baptized into Christ and yet you're imperfectly communion, so there's a lack of Catholicity. Uh, these ideas are totally new, unprecedented, and not patristic, but this is what Vatican II has produced. Uh, Cardinal Casper says the following, which is very interesting in this respect. He says, the separated communities have an, on occasion better developed individual aspects of the revealed truth so that the Catholic Church, under the circumstances of division, is unable to fully accomplish its intrinsic Catholicity. So he's clearly saying Catholicity has been lost. We don't have Catholicity. We don't have a perfect Catholicity of the Church today. But we, we confess one holy Catholic and apostolic Church. That's the Church we believe in. We don't believe there's anything lacking in Catholicity. Uh, so he says, therefore, the church is in need of purification. The church, the body of Christ, is in need of purification and renewal and must constantly walk the path of penance. So that is very interesting. Now let's look at St. Maximus. What does St. Maximus have to say about this? Is this possible? Can we reconcile this with his thought? And I'm going to just use Father George Dragas's writings, which is a fantastic text. You have that in the, uh, for those of you in Patreon, you have that in there. You can see that. <clears throat> and it's, he summarizes St. Maximus's thought here. He says, according to St. Maximus, all the baptized receive from the church in equal measure one divine form and name because they all come to exist and to be called Christians from the one Christ. The church gives all these people one simple, incomposite, 
an undivided relation of faith because they are all related to it and meet it in a Catholic way. They all come to cohere with each other and be conjoined to one another in one simple and undivided grace or power of the faith. No divisions here. No lacking in Catholicity here. Coherence. Simple, undivided. This is the vision of the church. This is the reality of the church. <clears throat> this is exactly what Acts 4.32 expresses when it says of the early Christians, the, the heart and soul of all was one. All right, so that's the church. That's, that's not possible when you have a lack of Catholicity. It's not possible when you have partial communion. It's not possible in Vatican II. Vatican II is admitting that it's not the church of the Acts of the Apostles. There are many and different members, says St. Maximus, but they constituted one visible body. One visible body. Is that what contemporary ecumenism teaches is that what Vatican II says? There's one visible body. No, there's not. Can't be one visible body. There's one body that's broken. Uh, and certainly there are aspects of it that it's very hard to determine where the boundaries are, what, who's really in, to what degree. It's all <clears throat> very furry, uh, fuzzy on the boundaries. Uh, one visible body, worthy indeed to be the body of the very Christ, their true head. And this is really the key here. This reflects on Christ himself. This reflects on Christology. Ecclesiology, Christology are inseparable. So you, when, when you fall into teaching this about the church, you're teaching it about Christ. You're undermining the person of Christ and is no longer the body of Christ. It's not worthy to be the very body of our Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the church. So St. Maximus, first of several uh, important subjects here and, and topics we're going to cover. On difficulties in sacred scripture, the responses to Thalassios. Okay, so there are many responses, many questions and answers. But we're going to look at 15, number 15. You can get this text. It's available in English now. Um, highly recommend anything you can get of St. Maximus is worth your time. St. Maximus now, a question to him. What does scripture mean when it says your incorruptible spirit is present in all things? And for this reason, you progressively correct those who trespass. Uh, not, a, not a traditional English uh, rendering, forgive me. Uh, I'm a stickler on that. So I, I would have gone with traditional English, but this is what we have. And if it says this about the Holy Spirit, how can this be reconciled with, quote, wisdom will not enter into a heart lacking understanding? and will not dwell in a body enslaved by sins. Okay, so the, he, the, the questioner is saying, look, in, in the wisdom here of Solomon, we see two apparently contradictory things. How do you reconcile this? On the one hand, the Holy Spirit is present in all things. On the other hand, wisdom, Holy Spirit, will not enter the heart, lacking understanding, will not dwell in a body enslaved by sins. And the final uh, part of the question, I have noted this because the first passage says the Spirit is unconditionally present in all things. All right, so what's St. What's Maximus going to say? Well, those of you who are, who are Orthodox and pray uh, every day the prayer, O Heavenly King, you have your answer right there. O Heavenly King, O Comfort, the Spirit of Truth, who art in all places and fill us to all things. All right, we, that's what we believe. We pray every day. Fill us to all things. Treasure, but give up. Come and abide in us. 
So that's strange. He's present in all things, but yet come and abide in us. Already we have our answer. But let's hear what St. Spirit, St. Um, Maximus says now. All right, so the first part of the answer, there's three parts to the answer and then a conclusion. The first part has to dealing is dealing with what I guess you can call as barbarians, all right? Those who are not in the old covenant, not in the new covenant, they're far from the revelation. What about them? And he says, the Holy Spirit is absent from no being, all right? There's, there's no human being on the face of the earth that is free, that is, the Holy Spirit does not in some way dwell. But what does that dwelling mean? Now, pay attention how he unpacks this. It's not, it's differentiated. It's not one-dimensional. And this is where many fall away from the Orthodox teaching because they want to make the Holy Spirit a one-dimensional thing. You have it in the church, you have it outside the church, more or less the same way. Not at all. Not at all. So the Holy Spirit is present everywhere, he says, especially not from those that in any way partake of reason. For the Spirit contains the knowledge of each being inasmuch as he is God and the Spirit of God, providentially permeating all things with his power. So that's the first clue here. We have a divine energies of God in terms of the providential energies, the prov providence of God. Right? That's what we're talking about here. That's how he's present throughout all creation. The Spirit stirs into motion the natural inner principle of each, through which he leads a man of sense to consciousness of whatever he has done contrary to the law of nature, a man who at the same time also keeps his free choice pliant to the reception of right thoughts arising from nature. So what he's basically saying is he is helping every man and every man of sense to come to consciousness and self-knowledge to a certain degree, right? If they're cooperating They've kept themselves pliant to the reception of right thoughts. All right? So they're not throwing off right thoughts, but they're accepting them. The Holy Spirit is introducing them, and they're accepting them. Uh, so th somebody asked me, how is it that I don't have a baptism, but I'm being led to the Orthodox Church? Well, here you go. Here's how it is. The Holy Spirit is leading everyone that comes to the Orthodox Church. The Holy Spirit is, and God himself is chasing every human being. Every day, every second, to become communicants with himself. And thus we find even some of the most barbarous and uncivilized men exhibiting nobility of conduct and rejecting the savage laws that had prevailed among them from time immemorial. All right, so that explains what's going on among the barbarians, quote unquote. All right, so these are the providential energies working throughout all creation. That's not anything like what goes on in the church. So don't be confused here. We're not talking about the mysteries or the grace of the, those who are initiated. We'll get to them. Now, talk about the old law. This then is how the spirit goes on. This then is how the spirit is unconditionally present in all things. But he is present more specifically and according to another sense in all those who live according to the law. All right. So now we have a presence that's different. Not the same as those. Now we have something more specific in another sense for those who are living according to the law. To these, he gives laws and proclaims in advance the mysteries to come, imbuing them with awareness of where they have broken the commandments, as well as with true understanding of proclaimed perfection in Christ. So those who have the law have great responsibility because they have the 
the, the inner work, not only the law itself, but they have the Holy Spirit working with them to understand where the law leads, and that is to Christ. So those Jews or those early Christians who turned away, having the law from Christ, they have a great responsibility because they had help, they turned away. And that, that goes for all of us who are in the church. God forbid that we would turn away. We have a great responsibility and, and we'll have a great account to give. And that's why those who teach heresy and, and delusion in the church are very uh, in a very difficult situation spiritually if they do not repent. Consequently, and for the same reasons, we find that many abandon the old religion of shadows and types in order to eagerly embrace the new and mystical worship, right? So that's by the Holy Spirit. But then, uh, so there was my title there, didn't read, President in other sense in all those who live according to the law. Now, we'll come to the church. And this is the part where we say in the prayer, come and abide in us and cleanse us from every impurity and save our souls, O good one, right? So this is this. This abiding that happens after initiation. This is what the church, St. Maximus is telling us, is a different way. And yet another differentiation of the divine energies in the world. In addition to these modes of the Spirit's presence, there is another, which is found in all those who through faith have inherited the divine and truly divinizing name of Christ. Those who have been baptized, chrismated, are communing, have become members of the body of Christ. In this mode, the Spirit is not present simply as one guarding and providentially setting in motion the principle of nature. Okay, It's not like the barbarians, right? Nor as one pointing out the keeping and breaking of the commandments and announcing the coming of Christ. It's not like the old law. But rather, as one creating the adoption given by grace through faith. As one creating the the adoption given by grace through faith. All right, what is that? What is that? Baptism, chrismation, communion, initiation. For the Spirit is productive of wisdom only in those who have been purified in soul and body through the strict keeping of the commandments. Yet another differentiation. All right, it's one thing to be initiated, another thing now to be on the pro in the process of keeping the commandments purified in soul. All right? The Spirit is productive of wisdom only in those who've been purified in soul and body through what? Not just receiving the mysteries. It's not enough. But keeping the commandments. So if you, if the, if the, if, if, say in a simple way, the energizing of the Spirit in our lives happens when we both receive the mysteries and we keep the commandments. Now, keeping the commandments means much more than just the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. This is all of what the Lord has given us, the whole ascetic life, right? <clears throat> the many, many commandments that the Lord has given us. He goes on, with them he communicates intimately through simple and immaterial knowledge, epignosis, knowledge, epignosis here, right? This is the experiential knowledge that comes through the keeping of the commandments. And by means of pure thoughts of ineffable mysteries, he configures their intellect for divinization, for theosis. So now you're talking about the inner core of the church where the process of purification, illumination, and theosis is taking place in those conscientious, struggling, ascetic, uh, self-denying, selflessly loving Christians. God is working 
uh, in this way, which is not just the providential, not just the old law, not just the reception of the mysteries, obviously it's a cooperation with the mysteries. So now he concludes, 15.4. The spirit is present unconditionally in all things, insofar as he contains all things, providentially cares for all things, and stirs into motion their natural seeds. Number one, A, throughout all creation. B, he is present more specifically in all who are under the law, for he shows them where they have failed to keep this law and enlightens them regarding the promise of Christ. B, the old law, all right? Now, in all Christians, however, he is present in another way, namely as the power of their adoption as children of God. And that adoption in baptism, chrismation, and communion, initiation of the body, has its presuppositions, right? That adoption happens when there's faith and repentance. That's our part. Cannot be forced. It's not magical. We have to bring it to the table. And when we have a synergy, a cooperation, when we're keeping the commandments, then that adoption becomes energized, as it were. It becomes active, becomes real, right? And D, final word. But as the author of wisdom, he is unconditionally present. Now, this, uh, now we're in the church, we're among Christians, but then he goes one step further. He is unconditionally present only in those who have understanding and who are by their godly way of life, who by their godly way of life have made themselves fit to receive his divinizing indwelling. So even among those who've been initiated, there is yet another step. It's not enough. People say, I've, become, I've arrived, I've become Orthodox. You've just begun. You've just begun becoming Orthodox. Now the real struggle begins. For everyone who does not carry out the divine will, even though he is a believer, has a heart lacking in understanding because it has become a workshop of evil thoughts. All right, let me repeat that. For all of us, my fir first for myself and for all of us, for everyone who does not carry out the divine will, the commandments, even though he is a believer, even though he is a believer, has a heart lacking in understanding because it has become a workshop of evil thoughts and the bo a body deeply in debt to sin because it perpetually subjects itself to the defilement of the passions. All right, so... That whole process of purification is essential if we're going to arrive at illumination and wisdom. And that's the explanation of these apparent contradictions in uh, Wisdom of Solomon and in number 15. Now, all of that should have allowed us to understand uh, also the distinctions that we're going to talk about later on, very important distinctions of the Holy Spirit inside and outside the church, the Holy Spirit in the mysteries and outside the mysteries, how, the, how there are presuppositions for the divine energies of purification, illumination, deification, how it's not enough to simply want to be a disciple of Christ. You have to be initiated and, be, and be, become a dead, dead to the old man and alive to the new man in the mysteries which only are available in the church. That's when the, this whole divine energies of purification, illumination, deification begin. All right, we'll talk about that later. But St. Maximus gives us essentially that teaching right here. But there's also uh, other, other ways, other sources for that teaching. All right, so let's look at St. Maximus in defense of the faith. Because he's a major towering figure of a confessor, right? We call him St. Maximus the confessor. And he defended the faith in a time of great heresy. 
He died in 662, and the council that the ecumenical council that justified him was in 681. And so 20 years after his repose, the the the, the voice of orthodoxy had been silenced, and yet it was victorious 20 years later. That's a very important point because people give up. Oh, I want to run away. It's too hard. We have too much heresy, too much delusion today in this in the end times or whatever they, they might be saying. Look, the church went through worse. Church has gone through much through 2,000 years of history. God does not abandon the faithful. Just struggle and defend the faith. That's our, our role. Leave the rest up to God. Now, let's look at the example of St. Maximus. During the interrogation, it was, they, they, was, they had sent bishops to interrogate him from the, from the uh, emperor uh, because he had continued in his uh, defying, uh, essentially, almost all the bishops of the, of the church at the time. Uh, so uh, the, the great sees of Antioch and Alexandria and Constantinople, I, I think Jerusalem uh, and Rome, they said, was about to fall to uh, the heresy. Uh, if you know a little about the history of St. Maximus, highly recommend you read up. It's very important. You acquire the, uh, the book, the life that's, uh, that exists in English, uh, because he teaches us uh, so much in terms of long-suffering, patience, confession, humility, uh, about how to deal with heresy and how to confess the faith. So anyway, they've, this has been going on for decades. Uh, the heresy has uh, pretty much won the day, it, it appears. And they send, uh, because he's still a thorn in the side of the political powers that be, they send a, a group to interrogate him. And St. Maximus says many things, but we're just taking a few uh, quotes here. Uh, he says, look, once the Arians put this forward, quote, let us remove the homoousion and the heterousion and let the churches unite. What's he saying here? He said, look, you're coming, you want to compromise, you want me to compromise the faith. The Arians also said that. But our God-bearing fathers did not consent to this, but rather they preferred to be pursued and to be put to death than to pass over in silence. The use of equivocal terms Equivocal terms. This is very important. In our day and age, this is the way that they're going to achieve and they want to achieve, they're trying to achieve a false union, a false unity. We'll, we'll have the terms, you'll think one thing, I'll think another. Uh, one, of the, one of the examples in my own life was talking to a professor at Theology School of Thessaloniki who was a representative in one of the dialogues with the heterodox. And they had agreed in Germany at the time to uh, the Patriarchate of Constantinople to recognize the baptisms of the heterodox there. And they had some agreement with the Lutherans. Uh, and, and, and I asked this professor, I, he was a part of this whole um, uh, tragedy. Uh, I said, you know, uh, we, we, don't, we don't believe uh, that, I mean, what the agreement there that you have says that you recognize the mysteries, but we don't teach that in the Orthodox Church. And he said, well, it's endinami, it's in its potential. I said, where do you get that? He says, well, uh, St. Augustine or something, I think is what he said. But the thing is, what he's not saying here is that they think that we recognize their mysteries. He's telling us as one of the people that helped sign this document, draft the document, we don't really recognize their mysteries. 
So what is this? This is the equivocal political solution. On the one hand, let them think we recognize their mysteries. On the other hand, between ourselves and, and with the zealots among the Orthodox, we'll say we don't really recognize their mysteries. That's not how the church works. That's not orthodoxy. That's not how St. Uh, uh, Maximus is going to deal with this. Uh, that's not honorable. It's not true. True. It's not salvific. And yet this is what goes on, unfortunately, today uh, in the ecumenical movement. A lot of double talk, double mindedness. Uh, we use the same terms. We mean different things. Uh, there's never going to be unity as long as that's the case. Uh, he goes on and, and, and he says, I cannot grieve God by keeping silent about what he ordered us to speak and confess. So this is the stance of every Orthodox Christian, right? Not just the great confessor. He goes on now in uh, in the book, The Life of Our Holy Father, St. Maximus the Confessors uh, by Trans Holy Transfiguration Monastery, published in 1982. I don't think it's in circulation. I hope you can find a copy. It's worth your time. Listen, to th this is follow the dialogue here, a little bit uh, typo here, but we'll follow the dialogue. Very, very instructive. All right, this is also the dialogue here between hi himself and the, the bishop sent from the emperor. They ask him, to which church do you belong, St. Maximus? To that of Byzantium, Constantinople, of Rome, of Antioch, of Alexandria, of Jerusalem? For all these churches, together with the provinces in subjection to them, are in unity. Therefore, if you also belong to the Catholic Church, enter into communion with us at once, lest fashioning for yourself some new and strange pathway you fall into that which you do not even expect. So they're saying basically, look, you're a schismatic. If you don't quickly come back to the, to the unity of all the churches, you're outside the church. Is that true? Is that the criteria? Is it about numbers? What's the church? On what basis do we understand and recognize the church? To this, the righteous man wisely replied, Christ the Lord called the church, the Catholic church, which maintains the true and saving confession of the faith. It was for this confession that he called Peter blessed and declared that he would found his church upon this confession. Remember that from our first lesson? That's what that means. It's on the confession. He doesn't say on the person of Peter. It says the confession of Peter, the confession of the faith. However, I wish to know the contents of your confession on the basis of which all churches, as you say, have entered into communion. If it is not opposed to the truth, then neither will I be separated from it. So just tell me the confession, and if it's true, I'll, I'll, I'll join you. I don't have any problem. I'm not, I'm not uh, against the emperor or against the churches. I'm, I'm, I want the faith to be confessed. And then later on, hearing their confession, and after further discussion, he was asked, but what will you do, inquired the envoys, when the Romans are united to the Greeks? The Romans meaning the people in Rome, not the, all of the empire with the Romans, right? But he's making the distinction between the Romans in the city of Rome, the patriarchate of Rome, and the Greeks, meaning the Greek-speaking people in the Roman Empire in the East. Yesterday, indeed, two delegates arrived from Rome, and tomorrow, the Lord's Day, they will communicate the holy mysteries with the patriarch. And he's saying, look, we've already got the union. Those who formerly with you... Back in the day when St. Martin was the Pope of Rome and you had a council and you stayed in Rome for decades there and teaching the faith and defending the faith, uh, you, those, they're, they're no longer Orthodox. Everybody's fallen to us. You're alone uh, here in exile. And the same replies, even if the whole universe holds communion with the patriarch, I will not communicate with him. I will not have communion with him.
For I know from the writings of the Holy Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit declares that even the angels would be anathema if they should begin to preach another gospel, introducing some new teaching. So that is the stance of the saint, the great confessor, the stance of every great saint. No one who calls himself orthodox is not going to try to imitate Saint Maximus. Finally, Saint Maximus on Caesaropapism in this discussion that he's having with the, with the representatives. It's very interesting, his stance, as it pertains to the emperor or to the state. Now, we have the same problem today, don't we? We have the, we have the local state or the state in, in Greece or in Russia and other places that's pressuring the church to go along with the measures and go along with all these things, close the churches down. And we see bishops nodding, yes, we'll close the church down, whatever you think, uh, uh, president and so-and-so, without... The criteria being Christian, spiritual, the faith, uh, but it's now become the uh, the question of public health or something else, as if uh, as if the church doesn't have its own criteria, doesn't have its own way of, of, of living, its own belief about the temple and all the rest. So this is important. What does St. Maximus do in the face of Caesaropapism and the emperor basically uh, forcing the patriarchs and putting his will over over the church to, to, to uh, achieve a false unity. Uh, so they mentioned how the synod convened in Rome by the blessed Pope Martin had condemned the Monothelites, St. Maximus says, to which Bishop Theodosius responded, it is the emperor's summons that gives authority to a council. Some, you know, there is that, of course, we have that, that the emperor calls the council, but it can't be absolute. It cannot be absolute. St. Maximus' reply is going to be very important. You know, people want to have a fairly legalistic, you know, let's, let's, let's make it very, very clear that this is, what a, this is what's going to make a council. It's going to be an emperor, it's going to be this, that, to a degree, but they're not absolute because you can have false councils with all those things too. So remember that. Uh, among the Orthodox here, we want to we want to kind of formalize and legalize things. It's not always possible. We have uh, the faith and the spiritual principles above all. Uh, if that were so, he says, the Orthodox faith would have long since come to an end. If it was that the emperor and uh, his summons uh, give authority to a council, well, that would have been the end of Orthodoxy. He says. Remember the councils summoned by the imperial decree to proclaim that the Son of God is not the same essence as the God the Father. The first was held in Tyre, the second in Antioch, the third in Seleucia, the fourth in Constantinople, under Evdokia, the Arian, the fifth in Nicaea, the sixth in Miam. Considerably later, a seventh false council took place in Ephesus, at which Dioscorus presided. He's talking about the Monophysites, talking about the, the, uh, the uh, heresy of monophysism. All these synods were convened by imperial decrees. They're all false. But were rejected and anathematized since they endorsed godless doctrines. On what grounds, I would like to know, do you accept the council which condemned and anathematized Paul of Samosata? Gregory the Wonder Worker presided over that council, and its resolutions were confirmed by Dionysius, Pope of Rome, and Dionysius of Alexandria. No emperor convoked it. 
but it is unassailable and irrefutable. The Orthodox Church recognizes as true and holy precisely those synods that proclaim true dogmas. And I can hear the the papal uh, uh, crowd saying, it's a circular argument. Well, take it up with St. Maximus. He says clearly, the Orthodox Church recognizes as true and holy precisely those synods that proclaim true dogmas. On what basis? Well, the church has its basis. It's a life, the life of the faithful, the life of the saints. You can't narrow it down legalistically. Your holiness knows that the canons require that local councils be held twice yearly in every Christian land for the defense of our saving faith. However, they say nothing of imperial decrees. Thank you, St. Maximus. Remind us again and again so we not fall into delusion and think that it's all going to be taken care of in cooperation with the state. The state has been and is and will be, especially in the end times, the great temptation, not the great defender of the church. All right, we go on to St. Maximus and the Holy Tradition and the church. All right, uh, let's begin with Epomenides Aies Patrasi. This is a just a... Uh, few comments, few quotes from our father, our Holy Father, St. John of Damascus, and how he follows the Holy Fathers in all things. Very basic, but uh, needs repeating. So there is no development of doctrine. There's no innovation in the Orthodox Church. He says, we will not remove the old age, age old landmarks, which our fathers have set, but we will keep the tradition we have received. For if we begin to erode the foundations of the church even a little, in no time at all, the whole edifice will fall to the ground. Therefore, my brethren, let us stand on the rock of faith and tradition of the church, not removing the landmarks set by our holy fathers, not giving room to those who wish to introduce novelties and destroy the edifice of God's holy Catholic and apostolic church. There are not a few today in the hierarchical positions that are introducing novelties, reinterpreting the canons, reinterpreting the patristic stance, ignoring the consensus of the fathers, okay? So this is very relevant. How are you going to know who to follow? You need to know what the holy tradition of the church is. You need to know what the boundaries of the church is. You need to know what a novelty is. How are you going to know that? You're going to wait for somebody to tell you that? You've got to learn. You've got to know your faith. Whatever has been transmitted to us through the law, the prophets, and the apostles, and the evangelists, we receive know and esteem highly and beyond that we ask nothing more all right very clear cut simple direct uh no funny business here with saint john uh earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints this is jude 1 3 this is my title for what he's saying here now, this is against his de- decree uh, against those who, do, who decry the holy images and he says the following Listen to me, people of all nations, men, women, and children, all of you who bear the Christian name. If anyone preached to you something contrary to what the Holy Catholic Church has received from the Holy Apostles and Fathers and Councils and has kept down to the present day, do not heed him. All right, Anyone, including bishops and priests, including theologians, including patriarchs, including councils. Right? There's, no, there's no limit to that. People say, well, well, the bishop said it, just do obedience. Sorry. That's not how it works in the Orthodox Church. We don't go to those two extremes. There's two extremes in the Orthodox Church that we don't go to, right? The two extremes we, we avoid. Papalism and Protestantism. 
a dictatorship of of the Episcopacy and a a democracy uh, of of lay people who who vote out the bishops. Those two extremes we don't accept. The royal path. The royal path is that the faithful, all of the church, the pliroma, is going to be responsible, co-responsible, to bear the burden of defending the faith. And And it is not, it is almost always hierarchs and priests who are the ones who are introducing the novelties. It's hard to find any, an old yaya, a whole grandmother, who's going to make a problem for the church introducing novelties. They exist, but they're not going to be a problem. So the problem is going to be oftentimes from the hierarchy. Do not receive the serpent's counsel, he says, as Eve did, to whom it was death. If an angel or an emperor teaches you anything contrary to what you have received, shut your ears. So angel, emperor, those are considered higher in many ways than even hierarchs and priests. So obviously they're going to be involved. We don't have, unfortunately, uh, an emperor, an Orthodox emperor today. Uh, and obviously uh, we're not going to be uh, receiving angelic, in other words, demonic uh, inspiration. So be on guard, he's saying. And he goes on, in the Orth- on the Orthodox faith 4.9, then we're going to talk a little bit about the mysteries and baptism and things quickly because we're, we're running behind. For he caused the fountain of remission to well forth for us out of his holy immaculate side. Here is an ecclesiological statement, very consistent in the teaching. Water for our regeneration and the washing away of sin and corruption and blood to drink as the hostage of life eternal. So that's what came out of the side of our Lord, water and blood. And that is obviously teaching us of baptism and communion. And he laid on us the command to be born again of water and of the Spirit. So baptism is not just the water. There's no baptism where just the water is being poured over somebody. That's not the baptism of the church. The Spirit has to be there. The Spirit comes through and in the body of Christ. Through prayer and invocation, the Holy Spirit drawing near under the water. The regeneration of it takes place in the Spirit. Right? Regeneration takes place in the Spirit. That, that happens in the church. For faith has the power of making us sons of God, creatures as we are, by the Spirit, and of leading us into our original blessedness. The remission of sins, therefore, is, a grant, is granted alike to all through baptism. Again here, there's no room for a differentiated level of remission that we see in Vatican II. There's no room here for a, a, a variety of kinds of, of, of Christians, some initiated into the mystery of the Eucharist, some not. There's no division between the water and the blood. They came out of the side together. If you're, if you're drinking of the one, you're drinking of both. This whole newfangled, insane, ecumenistic ecclesiology that has a many-level differentiated participation in the, uh, the reality of the church, in the mysteries, some are in baptism, some are not. Some are, are, are I should say, in the, uh, participating in the Eucharist and some are not impossible in the patristic vision of the church. Again, the remission of sins, therefore, is granted alike to all through baptism, but the grace of the Spirit is proportional to the faith and previous purification. Now, this comes to teach us, again, what St. Maximus was saying. All of us are initiated through the mysteries, but not all of us are going to have the abundance of the grace. That depends on the faith and the purification. In other words, asceticism, fasting, all right, repentance, that depends on the person. There has to be that synergy 
Otherwise, we're talking about magic, and we don't believe in magic. Earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. Again, the, the saint is, is imploring us. He says here, be on guard, for he that believes not according to the tradition of the Catholic Church or has intercourse with the devil through strange works, he is an unbeliever. All right? You don't believe according to the Catholic Church. You're not a part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. You don't believe what we believe. He's an unbeliever. He doesn't say oh, there's faithful people outside of that tradition and that church. He doesn't talk about Christians outside of the church. Now, we we do that, what we would say in Greek, we do it in a way that's not accurate. We allow the use of that term. And I think the one distinction we can make we're here we're doing dogmatic theology right? we're doing ecclesiology we're doing we're speaking in with specifics we're not the words we use mean something we're not just using it for social on a social level so it, we have to be precise when we say Christian when we say believer what does that what does that mean there's a context for all that and that's the church but we do use the term Christian for those who are not Orthodox not in the church how do we use it how do I use it at least and I don't know if this is you know I think it's generally used this way. Um, one can be a follower of Christ, believe in him, and we can call that person a believer or a Christian, but that is not what happens in the church. We don't just follow Christ in the church. We don't just believe in him as a person. We don't have ideas about him. We are united to him. We put him on. We are clothed in him. His, the nature that he has at the second at the right hand of the Father, we also have renewed in that nature. We, we, we are now a part of his human nature. That's a very different thing. So properly used, that's the Christian. Properly used, that's the believer, the one who's been who's died and rose and who has put on Christ and is living the fullness, which is only full, Christ is only full in the church. Okay, that distinction we made. We can use, and we sh we, I don't think there's a problem to use the term, but it, it's not precise, and it can be misleading. Uh, and for those outside the church, we can use the term. Anyway, let's move on. A man who is a heretic after the first and second admonition reject. Now, this is Titus 3.10, but listen to what he says in this vein as well. This is on the Orthodox faith 4.13. For since we partake of one bread, we all become one body of Christ and one blood, and members one of another, being of the one body with Christ. With all your, our strength, therefore, let us beware, lest we receive communion from or granted to heretics. So clear distinction here. Communion happens in the church. Heretics don't have it. Do not give them and do not receive communion from them. When you see Orthodox praying in the Eucharistic assembly, with non-Orthodox, coming right up to close to receiving communion, well, do you think that they're in the spirit of what St. John is saying here? Or do you think they're at least playing with fire? Of course, they're trampling on the cannons. They're trampling on the cannons, and they're alien to the fathers who wrote those cannons, which is a tragedy at the very least. Uh, but unfortunately, oftentimes, along with that Eucharistic sharing of prayer, uh, they have adopted heretical ideas about the church. That's, that's, that's the heresy of ecumenism that we're living today, right? 
He goes on, he quotes uh, Matthew 7, 6, Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, says the Lord, neither cast ye your pearls before swine. Uh, the Lord, of course, did not say that a human being made in his image was a dog or a swine. That's not the point here. The point is that dogs and swine can't make sense of something holy and uh, beautiful and treasured. And so those outside of the experience of the Eucharist don't and can't understand and participate in it. That's the point here. Lest we become partakers in their dishonor and condemnation. So if we uh, fall into a relativization, a recognition of the Eucharist outside of the church, which happens, which has happened by prominent theologians that recognize the Eucharist to exist among the heterodox. Well, I don't see really any difference. If you recognize the mysteries of the heterodox and you deny the need for Orthodox faith as a presupposition and Orthodox communion as a presupposition for the Eucharist, then you are trampling and you're identifying with the heretics and you're doing what he's saying here. You're, you're dishonoring uh, yourself and, and you're bringing condemnation upon yourself. You cannot recognize any of the mysteries outside of the mystery of the church without falling away from the Orthodox confession of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. For if union is in truth with Christ and with one another, we are assuredly voluntarily united also with those who partake with us. So uh, this, is, uh, this is of the utmost importance. This, this communion uh, cannot, be, uh, cannot be anything less, and we cannot play with this. We cannot have any discounts on this level. All right, so we're going to go quickly here to Canon 95 of the Council of Tr in Trullo, and we're going to say a few words about it because it's important, but we're going to come back to that probably next week. So if you don't get it now, don't be too bent out of shape. There's a lot to cover in a quick, short amount of time. Now, this canon is very important. We're going to read it right here in a second, but I want to introduce it to you. This is a this is the so-called Council in Trullo, or the Penthecti or Quinisect Council, and that is essentially the council that happened uh, to, to put down, a few years after the Sixth Ecumenical Council, to put down the canons for both the Fifth and Sixth Ecumenical Councils. Essentially, they, be, they became known as the canons of the Fifth and Sixth Ecumenical Councils, and they're accepted by the whole church, and they, they collected, essentially did the work of a, a, a book of canons for the church. They collected ancient canons, recognized them, and, and so this 95 canon is, is an amalgamation. It's a collection of different canons put into one, which is unique, and it needs a little bit of care in interpretation, obviously. So Canon 95, which is oftentimes referred to by people who want to talk about the boundaries of the church, the sacraments of the church, uh, is an amalgamation of previous canons, almost verbatim, one inserted into the other, and then new clauses are added to the end. The core of the canon is Canon 7 of the Second Ecumenical Council of Constantinople, Within this is inserted the first sentence of Canon 19 of the First Ecumenical Council. After this, there is added another section in addition to what had been decided in earlier canons. It is this addition that seems to cause problems for interpreting the canon. It is helpful, though, to remember that the canon is an amalgamation of canons with an addition to the end to expand the canon. Very important. I appreciate and I'm indebted to Father John Patrick Ramsey, who's, who's uh, you have the quote there, uh, the uh, link there, if you want to uh, look at it on academia. He's, he's done the work 
to examine the proper understanding of this canon. And I, I, I'm going to give you the, the result, but if you want to see the whole process, you can go to that academia link. You can see how he worked through the different versions and he gives us the proper understanding of the canon, which unfortunately is very much misunderstood today. Very important canon, very much understood. So we're going to quickly read through it and I'll point out where uh, people get it wrong. So you understand as well. We accept those from heresies being added to orthodoxy and to the portion of those being saved. Now, that phrase added to orthodoxy, you remember that? That's from Acts of the Apostles. We talked about that earlier. Added to the church. And that's what happens. People come, they're added. To the, the, that's how you become an orthodox Christian. You become uh, added to the church through the mysteries. Uh, and to the portion of those being saved, who, who are those being saved? Those who've been added to the church. Salvation, church, inseparable. According to both the service and customs submitted below, we accept Arians, indeed Macedonians, and Novatians. We see that St. Basil, however, said they should be baptized. Here it says they can be chrismated. See the interpretive key here. What is it? Acrivia economia. Otherwise, you cannot make sense of these canons. Uh, we accept Arians, indeed, and Macedonians, and Novatians, those calling themselves clean, Cathari, in other words, uh, and Aristeri, and Fortinist, considered Tetradites, and Apollinarists, giving documents and anathematizing all heresies, not thinking as, as the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church thinks, by sealing, that is, by anointing first, by holy myrrh, the forehead and the eyes and the nostrils and the mouth and the ears and the sealing, them saying, seal of the gift of the Holy Spirit. You remember St. Basil said in his canon, make sure that everyone, if they're received by economia, nonetheless, they must be chrismated in the middle of the church in view of all. It's one of his one of his presuppositions here that needs to be kept. So in these particular heretics, the church at the time had decided they can be received by economia. We're going to, we talked about it before. We'll talk again. What's the criteria? What, what is the basis the church says that these particular heretics can be received by economia? In other words, the, the empty baptism, the form, the type is not going to be fulfilled uh, in, 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 in by chrismation. What's the what's the What's the basis? Well, in a word, it's that they've maintained the form, the type, so that they can then be received. And the church deemed it on account of the many, economia anegeston polon, according to St. Basil. All right, so those, those are some of the criteria why the church does economia. Uh, and concerning the Paulinus, then taking refuge to the church, a rule has been set to rebaptize them. In every case, all right? So that group, no way, no possibility of chrismation. Doesn't tell, doesn't tell us why. It says that's what we're going to do. We can glean a little bit from other reason, other things like St. Basil's canons mainly for why that might be the case. But the canons don't have any, they don't feel the need to explain themselves. The fathers say, this is what we do. See how it's not, they're not trying to do ecclesiology here. We don't need to. We're not trying to figure out what the church is from these canons. That's a very mistaken way to look at the canons. However, eunomians, those baptizing into one immersion. All right. So here we have a reference to the form, the type. And they say, no way, cannot be chrismated because they're giving you the reason. They were baptized into one immersion. Well, that's not the baptism of the church. We have three immersions, three names of the Holy Trinity. The name are three persons of the one name of the Holy Trinity. 
Uh, and Montanists, those hereabouts called Phrygians and Sabellians, those glorifying, teaching, son, father, and doing other embarrassing things, and all the other heresies, pay attention, all the other heresies, no more distinctions necessary, any other heresies that exist, what do we do with them? For there are many thereabout, hereabout, especially those coming from the Galatian region, all those from them willing to be added to Orthodoxy, we receive as Greeks, what does that mean? Heathens. What do we do with them? We baptize them. That's what we do with heathens. And the first day we make them Christians, and the second catechizing them. Then the third we exercise them with the act of breathing thrice on their faces, and then we baptize them. All right. So that's all the other ones we have. And also, and here's the key where people get confused because of the different versions and translations that exist. He goes on now. This is the addition. This this latter part is the addition. That it's only in this in Canon 95, doesn't exist in the Second Ecumenical Council, the, going on further down. Also, the Manichaeans and the Valentinians and the Marcionists and those out of similar heresies. What? What do we do with them? We baptize them. That's what that means. It is necessary to make documents and denathemize their heresy. The Nestorians and Nestorius and Nephticius and Dioscoros and Severius and the remaining exarchs of these heresies and those thinking their things, and all the aforementioned heresies. What did we do with them? Well, it's obvious here, we baptize them. That's what it is. People have been interpreting this because of a poor version translation, I don't know why, that they just received communion, period. And then it goes on, and thus lead to partake of Holy Communion. For all of the pre-mentioned heretics, after they're baptized, after they're chrismated, then they commune. That's all that's saying there. But it's been interpreted by many that this canon is saying that these other ones, these other heretics, uh, are going to be just received by communion. But that's unprecedented. There's nowhere in any of the canons that we talk about receiving people just by communion. So there's no basis to interpret this canon in that way, when we have all the previous tradition doesn't talk about that at all. At the very least, it's chrismation. All right, so that is Canon 95. Very important. We'll come back to that in the future. All right, last thing. We're going to cover St. Tarasio's Patriarch of Constantinople. And what did he do? <clears throat> what did he do at the Seventh-day Communical Council? Now, it's a little hard to read here, but when you get the PDF, <clears throat> you'll be able to read it. Or if you want to go online <clears throat> and download on the Unity of the Church by St. Hilarion, Trotsky. It's a PDF, easily find. Just put St. Hilarion on the Unity of the Church. You can find the text. Go to page 51. And you can read it yourself. Um, but forgive me, so it's a little bit small here. But this is very important. I'm going to read to you, first of all, what St. Hilarion has to say here. And then I'm going to read to you uh, what St. Tarasios did. All right. Very, very important uh, for our understanding of economy and heresy. And this is an interpretive key, very important to key. How do we deal with heresy? How do we, what's the church, the boundaries of the church? All right, so let's begin here, if you can read it with me. If the thought that heretics already have grace-filled baptism lay at the foundation of their being received without baptism, all right, by economy, then one would have to determine for each separate church exactly and without fail which of the heretics have baptism and which do not. And no such thing occurred. I'm at the top of 51 here on the right side of the page. The church permitted diversity of practice according to the conditions of place and time without differentiating very rigorously between dogmatic teaching 
of the heretics. All right. So the church didn't go, as we saw, they don't, they don't go into detail about the dogmatic differences between the heretics. They say these are going to be received this way. These are going to be received this way. Now, here's the key. And one of the interpretive keys here, we go back to the Seventh Ecumenical Council. What did St. Tarasius do? And remember now, this is the return of, of hundreds of bishops. For 20, 30 years earlier in Kyria, they had a massive council, Iconoclast Council, 368 bishops. They all, were, they all agreed to the Iconoclast theology. And now they have the Seventh Ecumenical Council. St. Tarasius is charged with bringing all these bishops. What are you going to do with them? You're gonna you're gonna say they all they all need to go. Uh, you know they're they're they're, they're pseudo bishops. They're nothing. What do we do with them? How do we receive them? And there were there were monks and others who said, "This is the worst heresy ever. We cannot in the receive them by economy. They must all be re returned to the church by baptism, or or they need to be uh, you know not allowed to be bishops or whatever." Now that's the crivia. But what about economia? What can we do in this case? Uh, and here's here's what's very interesting. They argued at length about how to receive the bishops of the iconoclasts. Now, some of the some of the hardcore iconoclasts they 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 did not receive at all. Only those who repented, obviously, were going to be brought back in this way. Uh, so, one deacon and other monks, if you read the actual, unfortunately, I couldn't get the English version. I didn't find the English version of this, but in the Greek, you can see that there are actually a, a, quite a number of monks at the council. Yes, monks went to councils, not just bishops. And they were arguing, look, we've got to do a crivia. We've got to be exact. And it was one deacon, he says here, wanted to transfer the question to the dogmatic soil and posed the question, is the heresy which has now appeared anew less grievous than those that preceded, or is it more grievous? So that was one of the questions they posed. In other words, from that, we'll figure out what we're going to do, right? Now, listen to what St. Tarasius says. Evil is evil, especially in matters of the church. As far as dogmas are concerned, it is all the same to err to a small degree or to a great degree, because in one case or the other, the law of God is broken. He's quoting St. James, the apostle. So again, I'm going to repeat that. It's very important because people are, today, Orthodox people are arguing, well, some heretics are closer. Therefore, we receive them by this way. Others are far away. No, that's not how the church thinks about this. Listen to what St. Tarasio says again. Evil is evil, especially in matters of the church. As far as dogmas are concerned, it is all the same to err to a small degree or to a great degree because in one case or the other, the law of God is broken. And we might add, and communion is lost. You, 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 the, the point here is that you've walked away from communion out of the church. You no longer have communion. That's what's been lost. Whether you, were, you lost it through Arianism, Monophysitism, Iconoclasm, Papalism, Protestantism, it doesn't matter. Now, what, what matters there is that it might be harder for you if you become an occult Satan worshiper. Obviously, it's going to be harder for you to become, come back. That's what's different. If you become a, a Jehovah's Witness, if you become a Mormon, you're going to be, have a harder time coming back to the church. Obviously, you've adopted even stranger ideas, and now you have more obstacles. In that sense, there is a distance. But in the sense of whether you lost communion with the church, there's no difference. And therefore, this idea that we have a worse or greater heresy does not impinge or does not 
uh, inform our decision in terms of economy. Economy is going to be on the basis of what's in the best interest of the salvation of the people and of the church. That's the way the church looks at it. Now, very important last little section here. I hope that you got that. Go back, download on the Unity of the Church, read it and reread it if you want to become well-versed in the boundaries and the nature of the church. Amen. Yeah.